Well, first of all, I'm thankful Melissa got this thing started so I didn't have to worry about that. That's always kind of an awkward pause to get started. So as Melissa was saying, reviewing the, dif the disciplines, discipline one and discipline two, those directly feed into what we're going to be talking about today, which is discipline three. And this is how we get to interact with one another as a part of the local church, as a part of the body. We get to interact, and specifically this morning, we're going to talk about the practice of biblical relationships. We're going to talk about how this discipline uh, works itself out. We're going to talk about um, how those relationships work themselves out in the local church. And the tool that we're going to use to do that is something called the one another's. The one another's are something that many of you have heard of. Uh, and if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've probably even studied the one another's. And the one another's are a tool to survey scripture for how we are to practice biblical relationships within the local church. And the one another's don't capture everything about how believers relate to one another, but they are an extremely helpful tool to do that. And uh, before we just start getting started here, I'm going to pray, and because uh, we're going to be sitting under God's word and we need to be sensitive to that, so let's pray. Lord, we are going to be in many different passages in your word, and you have spoken. You have spoken clearly. You have spoken with authority. I pray that our hearts would be sensitive to your word, that we would submit our hearts to your word. Where there's correction, Lord, I pray that your spirit would bring that correction. Where, there, where we're doing well, I pray that we would excel still more. Jesus, ultimately, that you would be glorified in all of this. And it's always in your great name we pray. Amen. So if you've studied the one another's or heard of them or read different lists of them, there's a variety of lists and different things. The way that this list, um, and you should all have this in your handout somewhere, probably pull it out because we're going to be referencing it. And this list was compiled and generated as part of a study in my small group that I did uh, over a number of years. Uh, and and this, uh, the tiny little phrase, one another, is simply an adjective pronoun pair. And in my translation, NAS, one another shows up 108 times in 101 verses in the New Testament. And there are primarily two Greek pronouns that get translated into that English phrase, one another. And some of these 101 verses are simply narrative passages explaining what's going on. Like in Mark chapter 8, verse 16, they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. However, what we want to do is we want to look for the imperatives or the commands or the expectations for how believers are to relate to each other. And uh, there are one another's uh, that don't apply. Uh, for example, Matthew 24, verse 10, betray one another. Uh, hate one another. Revelation 6, 4, slay one another. So those are also not ones that we're looking to apply in the context of the local church. Um, and the results of filtering this list, all those 108 times down into the commands and expectations relating to believers, we get 38 different one another's contained in 59 different verses or passages. And there's a not a one-to-one -one correspondence there because some of them are used more than once. For example, love one another is used 14 times. They're found in two Gospels, Mark and John. They're in 16 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. In these one another's, the vast majority of these one another's are explicit commands or expectations for believers. And the vast majority of these commands that are expectations for believers, that are commands for believers, are to be carried out within the context of the local church. And so the local church, look around this room. Think about your small group. On Sunday, when we gather this Sunday, look around and, and think about these are the people that we are in a local assembly with. We are in the local church with. These are the ones that we get to practice these one another's with. We get to practice these biblical relationships with. And so my hope and desire is that, uh, you know, this lesson will provide some familiarity with the one another's so that they stand out in scripture so that we can be practicing them or practicing them more effectively within the body and specifically within this body, Grace Bible Church. 
And my hope is after going through this lesson that we will all see that the obedient Christian, you and me, the obedient Christian must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church here at Grace Bible Church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another within the local church. I'll say that again. The obedient Christian, you, me, must be in close biblical relationships with fellow believers within the local church. And evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with one another in the local church. The one another's are essentially a manual for biblical relationships within the local church. And, and one thing that we're not going to do uh, as a part of this study, we're, we're not going to pit against each other other passages that talk about believers loving other believers in general or loving non-believers. All those passages coexist and complement each other well. But today we're going to focus on what these, what God's word has to say about the one another's, these biblical relationships within the local church so that we can apply this well within our local church. And so on this page, and once you get it, <laughs> uh, you'll notice that uh, all the different one another are kind of categorized into six different categories. Uh, the categories are love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity. And we're going to step through each one of those categories and to help us investigate how God wants us to practice these one another's, we're going to ask six questions. Uh, and the first question is, how does God want us to practice loving one another? How does God want us to practice loving one another? So do you guys actually have the outlines where you can take notes on it yet? Okay, you guys have that, but not this. Okay. The primary and single most important one another is love one another. This command stands over and above all the others. It's an umbrella that covers all the other one another's. All of the other one another's flow out of this one. They flow out of a love for one another. So let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. John chapter 13. So we're actually going to be in a lot of different passages today. So we're going to get to practice how quickly we can find those. And here in John chapter 13, the context is that Jesus is uh, with his disciples in Jerusalem. They're in the upper, upper room for the Last Supper, and he's hours away from going to the cross. And Judas has already left, and Jesus provides a new commandment to his disciples. Starting in verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. I want you to see that word love. When you, when you read that, what, what, what's one of the first things that comes to mind? You know, what, what, what do you think about uh, when you hear love? Usually, one of the first things I think about is, you know, I think about the I think about love as an emotion, the feelings, the warm affections that I have for the relationships and the people that are in my life. And biblical love includes that, but it is also so much more than that. Uh, a biblical love is one that loves the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. It's one that loves our neighbor as ourselves. It's a selfless love. It's a self-giving love. That kind of love is one that transcends our circumstances. I also want you to notice something else about that word love. It's a verb. It's an active verb. This love is a love of action. It's not simply expressed. There's an action associated with it. And in this use of love, that action is directed towards one another. And now Jesus provides a new commandment. It's new because he narrows the focus of this love. The disciples are not simply to have a love of neighbor. That's already been established in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, and in Leviticus 19, verse 18. 
Here they are to love one another. The one another's here are those 11 disciples that are left. You, disciples, the 11 of you, love one another. Love the disciples. Jesus did not give this command to the crowds. He didn't give this command to all those that were following him. He gave this command specifically and intimately to these 11, to the ones who had spent, that he had spent three years developing these close, intimate relationships with. And these disciples are to love one another with a love modeled after the love that Christ had for them. Look at verse 34. Even you are to love one another, even as I have loved you. Even as I have loved you. What kind of love did Christ have for them? His love was unconditional. These 12 were not the easiest bunch to love. His love was humble. Jesus, the creator, the king, the Messiah, became a man and spent time with these guys, had these relationships with them, was patient with them. His love was merciful. He did not provide them what they actually deserved. His love was gracious. He gave to them. He chose them. He privileged them, not based on anything that they had done or demonstrated. His love was patient regardless of what they did. Many foolish things. Regardless of what they said, many foolish things. He was patient with them. His love was self-giving. It was selfless. It was sacrificial. He loved them when they didn't love him. And like I said before, this is hours before he's going to go to the cross. And he's about to be abandoned by all of them. He loved them when he knew that they would abandon him. The disciples were, have, were to have this kind of love that Christ is modeling. They were to have that kind of love for one another. And the results of that love in verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have a love for one another. All men will know that these are disciples of Christ. They will their love for one another provides a witness, a testimony to the world. And that's a love that the world does not understand. This new commandment that Jesus gives these disciples is a commandment for us. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We're to have close, intimate relationships with fellow believers for the purpose of pouring out our love on them. And our love for one another one of the results of that is going to stand as a witness to an unbelieving world of who we follow. Our love is going to magnify Christ. It's going to draw attention to Christ. This love is the outstanding and essential mark of the Christian. Another passage that has love one another is in 1 John chapter 3. So flip on over there. Towards the back of your Bibles, right in front or closely in front of Revelation. First John chapter 3, uh, verse 11, is where we find our one another. Uh, and here, John was writing to the local churches, likely around Ephesus. And I'm going to start reading in verse 10 and go down through 23. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Verse 10, does not love his brother. He who does not love his brother is not of God. The one, our love for one another is evidence that we're believers. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Again, our love is evidence that we have been saved. Verse 16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, Christ's supreme example. The love that Christ displayed by laying down his life is to be an example of us dying to self for the brethren. Verse 17, we love one another by providing for the worldly needs of our brethren. Verse 18, we love indeed in truth. Our love has action that is supported by and with God's word. Verse 23, we love one another just as he commanded us. Another instance of love one another is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. So in mine, it's on the very next page. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who, who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 10. He loved us when we didn't love him. We actually hated him and rebelled against him, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The father sent the perfect sinless one from heaven to earth to become a human, to be born, and to live in a fallen, sinful world. And he sent him to be the propitiation, the wrath-satisfying sacrifice for our sins. Not for his sins, not for everyone's sins, but for our sins, his people, his church. He bore the wrath, the punishment for sins, for those that did not love him. And verse 11 says, If God so loved us while we were rebels, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies, we also ought to love one another. God's love, we've covered most of this, selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, merciful, gracious, enduring, costly, provided for our greatest need, doing that which we were helpless to do. All of these instances, and you know, there's many more, in light of all of this, what should our love for one another look like? There needs to be others in my life, here at GBC, in my life, in your life. And I need to know what's going on in their lives so I can know how to love them. I need to always be looking for ways to love them, earnestly, constantly, consistently. My love needs to be selfless, with godly motivations. Everything that I have, time, knowledge, energy, possessions, are the Lord's. And those need to be available to love one another. It may be costly. Many times it is inconvenient. It may be a sacrifice. It may be a significant sacrifice. 
But these are the ways that God wants us to practicing, practice loving one another, and specifically loving one another here in the context of our church, Grace Bible Church. Does everybody have one of these now? All right. So the second way that God wants us to practice uh, biblical relationships, the second question we're going to ask is, how does God want us to practice caring for one another? And if you see here under care, you'll see care for one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another, and pray for one another. And we're going to cover care for one another first. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. So you can turn on over to that. And the context for this verse is really all of chapter 12. And Paul here is addressing the local church at Corinth. And Paul is dealing with division in the body in the Corinthian church. They had factions over who is being baptized by who, and now Paul is addressing division within the church because of spiritual gifts. And the focus Paul has here is on the unity of believers as one body in Christ, not as individuals, but unified for the common good. The different members of the body are necessary. And so I'm actually going to start reading in uh, chapter 12, verse 12, and I'll go through verse 26, just so that we understand all of the context. <coughs> For even as the body is one, yet has many members, and all the members of the body, and all are members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much more abundant honor and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the members that, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In verse 24, it says that God is composing the body so that there would be no division. God is the one who is sovereign over the church. He has composed this local church, bringing these different members into this body. And it's not so that we can be acting as individuals, but it's so that we may have the same care for one another. And Paul is contrasting division with care for one another. And here he provides two examples in verse 26 of this unity that we have, suffering and rejoicing. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. And I have a, when I was considering teaching here today, uh, one of the things that I think stands out in this it, with the suffering and rejoicing. Two weeks ago, or roughly when David Hendricks came home from the hospital, um, he was in a, a very significant state with COVID. And I got to see a picture of him on his way home being released from the hospital, and I was just rejoicing and praising God. And I know many have been praying significantly for them when that happened. And shortly after that, Michael went 
to be home with the Lord. And we are all suffering with the Kiwis. We are rejoicing on one hand and we are suffering with the other. And these are things that we get to do together. We get to care for one another. We get to rejoice. We get to suffer. And God puts us in the body to do these things so that we can provide the same care. This is a unifying thing that we get to come around. God puts different members in the body with different skills and resources, different capacities for the purpose of providing the same care for the body. God doesn't want division or factions. He, want us, he wants us unified, caring for those that are suffering and unified around rejoicing for those that are rejoicing. Another way God wants us to practice caring for one another is to bear one another's burdens. And this is going to be in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. And here, Paul is speaking to the local church found in Galatia, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. This is dealing with sin and temptation and restoration. To bear means to carry something burdensome, to carry it with endurance. Uh, a burden here is a heavy load, which is difficult to carry. Believers in the local church are being called to walk with a fellow believer to help them bear that burden of sin and temptation. Ultimately, onto repentance and restoration. Sin and temptation are significant burdens, and we need help. We need help from one another. And this is just not a pastor's job. This is the job of all of us as we walk alongside each other. One of my former pastors said, you are either bearing a burden or you're helping someone else bear theirs. Those are the ways that we get to practice caring for one another. And we're going to, how does God want us to practice edifying one another? And on the handout under edification you find build up one another admonish one another speak truth to one another speak to one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs encourage one another seek after that which is good for one another stimulate one another to love and good deeds we're going to jump into build up one another found in first first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul wrote this letter to the local church found in Thessalonica. And I'm going to be starting in verse 1 so that we can capture the whole context here. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. These believers had questions and concerns about the day of the Lord and when it was going to take place. And so Paul proceeds to encourage them and build them up. He explains truth about believers, that they're not in darkness, they're not overtaken, they're not destined for wrath. They're destined for salvation in Christ. They are sons of light, sons of the day. 
Therefore, since for unbelievers, wrath, and since for believers, there's no wrath, encourage and build up one another. And Paul was actually demonstrating this by building them up and encouraging them with the truth that he just, you know, walked through. To practice this, this assumes we are in close communication with believers. And we get to spend time with them so that we can encourage them, so that we can build them up. Another way that God wants us to practice edifying one another is to admonish one another. And this is found in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and all able also to admonish one another. The word here for admonish, some translations may say instruct, is the word nutheteo, which may seem familiar to, as many of you have heard of nuthetic counseling, biblical counseling. It simply means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct, to admonish, to warn, to instruct. This is not simply instruction for knowledge sake. It's instruction for the purpose of having someone avoid or cease doing something. And this admonishment must always have scripture brought with it. This is lovingly going to, with scripture, your brother or sister and warning them about something that they need to cease doing or something they need to avoid. And we're doing this with one another. And Paul here is affirming that these believers are able to do this. They're able to do this with one another. All believers bear the responsibility of admonishing one another. This is also not just the elders or the deacons, small group leaders. This is all of us with one another. We're commanded to do this. And as Paul affirms here that these believers here in Rome were equipped to do so. And so are we. There is also an implication if we are admonishing one another. That means we're going to be admonished. And we have to have our hearts prepared for that as well. When somebody brings scripture to bear on our lives with something they've seen, something that we need to cease, something that we need to avoid, something that we need to be warned about or instructed from, we need to have our hearts be sensitive and soft and ready to hear what God's word says. Not the imperfect messenger that might bring that, but what does God's word actually say? And for those that you have, who have had someone come and admonish you, likely they did not do it perfectly, and that's all right. Nobody's going to do that perfectly. We are, we are all sinners. And yet, we need to hear and be sensitive to what God's word does say, because that is what is perfect. And so those are ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. Well, let me say one more thing. Likely none of us want to be confrontational. We love to be encouraging. But what is the most loving thing that we can do for one another if we see them in sin or uh, something that they need to be warned from, something they need to cease doing? What is the most loving thing we can do for them? For them? We can go to them. We can expose it. We can lovingly admonish them with God's word. And so that's, those are a couple ways that God wants us to practice edifying one another. The next question, number four, how does God want us to practice being humble with one another? How does God want us to practice being humble with one another? And under humility, we find give preference to one another, be subject to one another, regard one another as more important than yourself, confess your sins to one another, be humble toward one another. Give preference to one another is one of the ones we're going to cover. And that's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, so a couple pages back. This section of Romans here in chapter 12 has some 25 exhortations for believers. And the section our verse is in deals specifically with family relationships, specifically the family of God. 
in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. And we're covering the part dealing with the, give preference to one another. Other translations may say outdo one another in showing honor. This giving preference or outdoing means to do with eagerness, to do exceedingly, to lead the way, to go before and proceed to prefer. And honor here is simply high respect, high esteem. It is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for fellow believers by putting them first. By putting them first. Genuine appreciation, genuine admiration by putting them first. We are to go before, we're to be proactive in giving honor. We are showing genuine appreciation, genuine admiration for one another in the family of God. We are quick to show respect. We are quick to show admiration. We are quick to give acknowledgement of, of the accomplishments of others. We are quick to show genuine love by not being jealous or envious. And there is a big thing that keeps us from even recognizing these things. And that's our own pride, our own selfishness. It takes humility to get outside of ourselves and to see others at all, let alone to see them in such a way to actually put them first. Another way that God wants us to practice being humble with one another is to confess your sins to one another. And that's in James chapter 5, verse 16. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Confess your sins to one another. Confess here simply means to make an admission of wrongdoing, a, a confession of sin. Confess, admit, it's pretty straightforward. And we are commanded to continually do this with one another. Who loves to confess their sin? That's what I thought. Uh, that's not something that we desire to do. Sin wants to stay hidden. Sin wants to stay private and secret. And in our other sins, our pride, our selfishness, we often run away from confession. But God wants my sin, and he wants your sin exposed. He wants it dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. He wants, our, he wants repentance. And it is simply God's kindness that he wants this done in the loving fellowship of believers in a very small, intimate gathering to give the best opportunity for there to be genuine repentance. He wants the sinner protected. Unless that sinner is hard-hearted and is rejecting that. And that is why Matthew 18 is set up the way it is. It's first and foremost, it's one going to another. The people that know about that sin is the smallest group possible. And if there's hard-heartedness, the circle expands to another group. To still, with the, the idea of restoration and repentance, restoration is harder the more people know. And so, but if there's still hard-heartedness, the, the circle expands eventually to the whole church. And that is just God's kindness. And so he does want our sins exposed. He does want true repentance. And it, it, is a, it is a very humble thing to do to actually confess our sins. But you know what? We're all in the same boat. Who here is not a sinner? Yeah, I thought that too. Um, so we need to be in close, intimate relationships to be able to humbly practice this one another. Question number five. How does God want us to practice serving one another? On the handout under service, we have serve one another, be hospitable to one another, 
and wash one another's feet. We're going to start with serve one another found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. First Peter chapter four, verse 10, but I'm gonna start in verse eight and go through verse 11. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. Out of a fervent love for one another, we are to serve. Serve here. That is the, the, the word there for serve is diakoneo, which is the word that we get for deacon. And that is a, it's a personal service. It's a discharge of loving service. In Greek culture, this word would have had the meaning, meaning of waiting tables. And for the Greeks, service was looked down upon as undignified. They would have said, we are born to rule, not serve. Our service to one another is out of a love for one another. And it can be very humbling and it can be very exhausting. And as we serve one another, pouring ourselves out for one another, we are serving, in verse 11, by the strength which God supplies. Our service, many times we have the opportunity to serve and we do not have the strength to do it. And that's where... We still need to do it, and God is supplying the strength for us to actually do that. And why? So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's not in our own strength. It's not because of our how great we are in serving others. We're not trying to draw attention to ourselves. We're trying to care for and serve somebody who has a need, and we want God to get the glory for it. Our loving service to and for one another is all about the other person, and it's all done in God's strength, and it's all done to the glory of God. Another way that God wants us to practice serving one another is to wash one another's feet. So, Melissa, did you bring the tub of water? Yeah. <laughs> and that's back in John chapter 13. Again, we'll go back to John chapter 13. And that's found in John chapter 13, verse 14. Wash one another's feet. But here, the context uh, begins in verse 3 and goes through verse 16. I'm going to read verses 3 through 16. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed only needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you should also that you sh- that you also should do this as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Back then, where they were, there was dirt and dust everywhere in Israel. And it was not uncommon for the dust to be up to an inch thick. And when it rained, what did that turn into? Turned into a big mess. And wearing only sandals, their feet would get really dirty. And it was uh, at the entrance of every Jewish home, they would have had, there would have been large pots of water so that everyone could come in, that was coming in, could wash their feet. For a slave, this was the most menial task that they were given, was to wash the feet of all the guests. And when Jesus and the disciples arrived at the upper room, there was no slave. There was no one to wash the feet. One of the twelve should have offered to do it. But the twelve were too busy arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Luke chapter 22 verse 24 tells us that. They were too busy being selfish, thinking of their own perceived greatness to see the humble service that needed to be done. So Jesus, the God of the universe, the King, the Messiah, who was already humbled himself coming to earth to take on flesh, took another step even lower. Jesus, by his example, displayed incredible, humble service that the disciples were to do in like manner with each other. We're to get low and follow our Lord's humble example of service to one another. We don't exactly have the same dirty feet problem, but there are plenty of menial, humble tasks that get no attention that we get to serve one another with. One of the examples for this for those of you who remember Johnny Beckman. He was one who served everybody in the church. And most people didn't even know his service at all, didn't know who he was when he passed. Um, When he passed, I got lots of questions like, who was he? Um, He was serving after church. He would clean stuff up. He went and he served cleaning bathrooms. He emptied garbage. These are things that nobody thought of. Nobody gave a second. You know, the garbage is always just empty. Bathrooms are are clean. That just happens. But guess what? He was one of those that did that. And people didn't know who he was. And, And he wasn't looking for that attention. He was looking to humbly serve. There was needs. He humbly did those things. And there are lots of those kinds of things. And so those are ways that God wants us to practice serving one another. How does God want us to be unified with one another? Under unity, we have be devoted to one another, let us not judge one another, be of the same mind as one another, accept one another, greet one another, wait for one another, do not consume one another, let us not challenge one another, let us not envy one another, show tolerance for one another, bear one another, do not lie to one another, live in peace with one another, do not speak against one another, do not complain against one another, and fellowship with one another. So it'll probably take us about two hours to finish getting through that whole section. Um, The first one we're going to go for is be devoted to one another, found in Romans chapter 12. Verse 10, the first part of that verse. Again, this uh, command is uh, in the section we've already covered this to specifically talk about the family of God. And we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Some translations say love instead of devoted, uh, but, but this isn't the same love that we've been talking about. This, the Greek word behind devoted means the natural love which occurs within the family. A kindred love, warm affections. It could be translated lovingly loving 
The Greek word behind brotherly love is actually a word that you are all at least familiar with. It's the word Philadelphia. That word literally means love for brother or sister, a blood relative. The affection, tender, kind, caring, concerned, warm feelings and affections that you have for a blood relative. And when you put all that together, be lovingly loving with one another with loving love. It's a lot of love. And that's why I'm not a translator. Believers are to be devoted to each other, having affections and love for each other that are reserved for blood relatives, for immediate family, for brothers, sisters, parents, children. And here, Paul applies that kind of love to Christians. Believers are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have one father and we are children of God. We are in the family of Christ. There are things that I do and say with a close family member that I would not do or say with just a more casual acquaintance or a friend. And how much unity are we to have within the family unit that God has ordained? Husbands, wives, parents, children, brothers, sisters. That's the relationship we're to have with one another. Here in the local church, here at Grace Bible Church. We're commanded to have those warm, familial affections with one another. Another way that God wants us to practice being unified with one another is to let us not judge one another, found in Romans 14, verse 13. And the context here is actually all of chapter 14, and it's dealing with conscience. And I'm going to start reading in verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his, judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one, one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he, give, he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For, the, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, and he, that, he might be both, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And in verse 13, Therefore, based on all of that, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. There are two issues that Paul is addressing here in this chapter. One is dealing with food, and the other is dealing with certain days being uh, regarded as more important than others. There's weak believers, there's strong believers. Strong believers can have this attitude of contemptuous superiority, and weak believers can have an attitude of self-righteousness. Paul provides the command not to judge one another. These issues of the food and of the certain days, these, these issues are not in the area, these are in the areas of Christian liberty and practice. These areas are neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture, or they're neither commanded nor forbidden by Scripture. They're personal preference and historic tradition. They're, they are not doctrinal or moral compromise. God has specifically accepted both the strong and the weak believer. And if God himself doesn't make an issue of such things, what right do his children have to make an issue of it? 
This doesn't mean that we don't talk about our preferences, but we don't hold our preferences as though they are principles. We don't judge our brothers and sisters that don't hold the same preferences. And we don't regard them with contempt. That's another way that we get to practice being unified with one another is to not judge each other's preferences. We've investigated six questions with how God wants us to practice biblical relationships within the local church, within here, Grace Bible Church. So I have a a few more questions to ask. Can one be obedient to Scripture and not be practicing for one another's? Can one be obedient to Scripture and not be practicing the one another's? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged in to a local church? Can one obediently practice the one another's and not be plugged in to a local church? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? Can one effectively practice the one another's by only participating in body life on the Lord's day? We all live in America, and this country is very consumeristic, and we can't get away from that. We're all impacted by that. And given that, it's very easy to bring kind of a consumeristic view into the church. It can be common for us to focus only on what we get out of a relationship, what we get out of a Bible study, what we get out of a church service. I view how well something is going based solely on what I felt I got out of it. That view of relationships within the local church, Scripture does not support. The obedient Christian must be in biblical relationships with fellow believers, and because this is Grace Bible Church, must be in biblical relationships with fellow believers here at GBC, and evidence of those close biblical relationships is the practice of the one another's with the people here at GBC. And here at GBC, the primary vehicle we have for practicing biblical relationships is small groups. And this is where, you know, back in the day when there were really small towns and everything, people ran up against one another and they rubbed up against one another in the in with the persecution that was going on they they hung together there was more opportunity for those things here there's people that are 60 miles away from each other um, in this metropolitan area and so we have to create vehicles for us to actually gather together to rub up against one another to have that opportunity to care for one another and one of the ways that we do that here at grace bible church is with small groups and these are smaller groups of believers here that we get to carry out, foster these more intimate relationships with. It's pretty difficult to have an intimate relationship with over 500 people. Um, And so we break it up into smaller groups to where we can have those intimate relationships. And these are for the opportunity for not what we get out of it. This is an opportunity for us to pour into others. And is there a a blessing that comes from doing that? Absolutely. Blessings, blessings in ways that we probably just don't even think about as we do that. So I know as, as I've gone through this study and taught this study many times, I'm always thankful and impressed by the way that God has composed the body and put us in relationships with one another. And all the instruction that we have as we read through our New Testament on what those relationships are to look like and how we can do that and how we can excel still more. So hopefully you've experienced that here at Grace. And if you haven't, talk to me, talk to others. We can make sure that that happens um, and have those opportunities to experience the love, care, edification, service, humility, and unity of the fellow believers here at Grace Bible Church. All right, let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to open your word to be exposed to many different commands and expectations that you have for us as believers, for us as believers here at Grace Bible Church. I pray where we need to have correction that we would be corrected, where we need to uh, just excel still more that we would do so still more. We are still sinners. We are still selfish. And Lord, we need to think about others. We need to pour into others. Lord, and your word is very rich in how that occurs, and I pray that we would do that well here at Grace Bible Church. And it's always in your great name we pray. Amen.